I keep I keep asking you questions because everyone I've talked to about the podcast is like, yeah, we should hear Brett talk more. So I'm trying to Brett talk. <laughs> yeah, but I'll just keep asking you things so we can get sound bites. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. Make content. I will talk. I will get content. <laughs> I will say things. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mandatory Media, the show about the books, movies, TV, poetry, and other pieces of media that we really love and really should have been mandatory on your media studies syllabus, but probably weren't. We've got three hosts here today. I'm David. I've got a bachelor's degree in media and communication studies, but for the purposes of this episode, I'm a massive Star Wars fan and Last Jedi apologist who has read way too many of the Star Wars books um, and watched way too much Star Wars content. Hi, I'm Brett. I'm a poet and scholar whose article, What You Will, Double Predestination and the Plot of Twelfth Night, was recently published in Synesthesia Online. Hi, I'm Seth. I'm a wannabe film critic, a student of the theater, and a general lover of the arts. Today's episode, we are covering Star Wars The Last Jedi, otherwise known as Star Wars Episode Eight. Ooh, it's, it's going to be a good one. So, uh, as always, we won't shy away from spoilers, so take care if you haven't seen it yet, as we will be spoiling it, discussing major plot points and themes from probably across all Star Wars movies. Yeah, so, uh, spoiler tag, Star Wars all. <laughs> yeah, this is this is an interesting one, because I feel like it's the first one we've chosen that hasn't been a bona fide or certified classic that most people would agree is a classic and something that you should watch or is at the very least important. Uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi is more or less just a blockbuster Star Wars movie, of which there are lots. Uh, there, there's a few, yeah. And this one happens to be probably the most controversial, I want to say. So uh, I want to combat all the negative stereotypes about Star Wars The Last Jedi because, you know, there are definitely problems in there. But I feel like there's such a negative aura around it that I have to be super positive about it. So... Let's just jump right in. So, first impressions or any stories you want to tell about seeing it? Well, I watched it for the first time yesterday. And many people walked into the room I was watching it while I was watching it. And they're like, basically, they're just like, oh, you're watching that. Why? <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, for someone who's watched all of, like, the numbered Star Wars movies before that one, but not that one, I, I, I get it. Like, it doesn't quite feel up to snuff with what came before it. But maybe David disagrees. I don't, I don't think I disagree with that. I just think Star Wars is such an interesting fandom and the fact Seth and I were talking about this the other day actually where it's one of those fandoms where being a Star Wars fan seems to be about who can hate Star Wars the most <laughs> oh and that's so sad it's it's so disheartening it it really is and it really kind of sucks the life out of it which is unfortunate but I think we have the 
general people who enjoy Star Wars, which is like, I would say most people. It's one of the most popular entertainment franchises we have right now. But famously, uh, that uh, super controversial guy who got arrested in Romania, uh, Andrew Tate, does not like Star Wars. <laughs> so everyone but Andrew Tate. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that addition, Seth. No problem. <laughs> it was really helpful to the conversation. Oh, I think I like Star Wars even more now. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so there's this thing in the Star Wars fandom where people always compare it to the last movies of how it wasn't as good as this one. or and But the problem with that is that happens every time a Star Wars thing is released. Like, even even the original... I actually have to fact check this later, so I might cut this out. But the, even the original movies at the time they came out, or at least the 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 first one was a pretty massive hit back in the day when it first came out. But each successive movie has always had some sort of like controversy surrounding it over decisions made. And the prequels, one, two, and three, were famously also hated by a lot of people, and a lot of really bad stuff was said to. Um, like the actors on on the prequel series and that kind of repeated itself with the sequel series so yeah it doesn't feel up to snuff but that's because we have like 30 years distance or more than 30 years on some on some things like you know of dis of of distance between these projects of like oh yeah that was classic i saw it back when i was a kid you know and like yeah return of the jedi turns 40 this year so uh we're at like four and a half decades of distance from the original yeah so it's it is an interesting like it definitely the movie has problems but i think we often forget so do all the other star wars movies if you really what? Start, no uh, they're all perfect except for this one Gah! If you really start picking apart things, it it, it kind of starts to fall apart, and you're like, "Huh, that is a little weird." Uh, just even like, I remember one of the quotes from like Alec Alec Guinness on set of the movie, <laughs> where he just like hated the dialogue. I don't know, and uh, was that uh, or was that Harrison Ford? Do you remember? Uh, that? It was both of them. <laughs> okay, so famously, famously, Alec Guinness did not like Star Wars. And not even like, oh no, I hate working on this. But he would. Alec Guinness in the 1970s was a very well established English actor. He'd done a lot of work with like Shakespeare and a lot of famous productions, very critically acclaimed. When he was shooting Star Wars, he's like, I'm shooting a B movie with amateurs in the desert. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Brett's laughing. Star Wars was the most expensive B movie ever made. Because. This was like George Lucas's like, I mean, this is his third feature film, but everyone on there is doing unprecedented, not to use like the most overused word of the last three years, but doing unprecedented things. Um, nobody knew what they were doing. <laughs> uh, also, there was, there was a general consensus among the cast of the first movie that George Lucas does not write words good. <laughs> Mark Hamill tells this really famous story, I think on Letterman, of like this insane big cloud of text that George Lucas wrote like during the the Millennium Falcon scene and and he had to like plead with Lucas to cut the line cuz he's like dude nobody talks like this so 
And then, yeah, in, in subsequent years, Harrison Ford uh, doesn't has admitted as much that he, he doesn't, not that he doesn't like Star Wars, but he's annoyed by people who go Han Solo. It's a little bit of an offshoot, but oh man, when I, uh, when, when Harrison Ford was doing press tours for the latest uh, Indiana Jones movies, one one um, pop reporter asked him like if you could take the dial of destiny anywhere where would you go and then he looks them straight in the eye with this look of intense hatred and just says home i would go home <laughs> harrison ford is a legend and an icon and the best he's done so many great movies he's got he's got a career full of great movies and great roles the best role he's ever played is himself whenever he has to do press for a movie. Because it is unhinged and hilarious, and he insults everything he's ever been in, and it's the best. Yeah, so that's the that's the kind of background, um, I guess, to your to your first impression, Brett, or at least of what I think of like the fandom background of like for people our age. Yeah, I would say most of them are going to react like that with kind of like, um, yeah. So, oh, what do you, that what, one. What do, you, what do you think about that, Brett? Um, oh, what do I think about that? Uh, you know, well, I, I mean, I get it. Like, I was, like, I, did, I didn't dislike the movie with the passion, but I still preferred the other ones but yeah, like you know like when I first watched the original like six as like a box set when I was fairly young and then the first of the new movies when it came out and I enjoyed them this I enjoyed but it seemed less as a classic to me it didn't have the same kind of feel to it but you know as time goes on we'll be able to look on it with hindsight and see whether such responses are accurate or if they are misjudged from the present yeah i was saying to david the other day i'm like when when in in 15 20 years when star wars 10 11 and 12 come out everyone's gonna look back on the sequels and go Remember, we had it so good when we were kids, and we forgot about it, and these movies were so great, and The Last Jedi is the greatest movie ever made, and 10, 11, and 12, they're the real bad movies. Um, I just want to pull up, just to jump back to Harrison Ford for a second, because I wanted to get the quote right. Um, sorry, this is my last Harrison Ford comment. Uh, this is an article published on IndieWire, February 18, 2020. Um... Of course, Harrison Ford, spoilers for Star Wars Episode Nine. he comes back in Episode Nine as, like, a vision to his son, Kylo Ren. Um, USA Today, when the film came out, asked Harrison Ford, so is Han Solo a Force ghost, or, like, what's going on in Rise of Skywalker? <laughs> and and this is, how, this is how Harrison Ford responds. Um, he says, a Force ghost? I don't know what a Force ghost is. Don't tell anyone... I'm not talking loud enough for your recorder. I have no effing idea what a force ghost is, and I don't care. <laughs> so, so that's the guy we're dealing with. 
Uh, uh, Seth, do you want to give uh, you have any first impressions you want to add? Right. On? Okay. So, um, I have a pretty. Uh, I mean, I've seen this film probably. It's one of the Star Wars movies I've seen the most. I've seen it probably five times since it came out. I saw it once in the theaters. I saw it like three times in eight months between like early 2019 and early 2020. And then I saw it again now. So yeah, I've seen it five times. Um, and I think I, I think my opinions have really varied on this film. I mean, when I first saw it in December 2017, I left the theater feeling disappointed and confused. I'm like, I don't get it. I I read a lot. I read and watched a lot of criticism on the film in like the subsequent year and a half, two years. Um, and then when I finally revisited it, I felt like I was finally starting to like get it and get how the movie works and what's it, what it's trying to say. Um, and so I, I lost my mind over this movie. And I, again, I saw it three times in eight months. Um, I was just, I was just so enamored. Uh, and this is the first time I've seen it in, in well over three years. And I think I've definitely like settled down a little bit. I'm like, there are definitely some problems here. But I feel like I've come to a more nuanced place on The Last Jedi. And I can really respect what Johnson's going for. Even if there are some, you know, more surface level things that don't work as well as they should. Yeah, so I think important background for the, the sequel trilogy as well is there's a lot of directorial changes and like big overarching things in the production that affected how the movie turned out and so i think honestly that that's a lot of what people are are chafing against i think like specific specifically people chafe against like changes to like luke skywalker's character but i think that's all a result of having these directorial changes of force awakens episode seven basically huge nostalgia blast of oh all the old characters are back this is so cool what a great time and and then going into episode eight and having this very different and distinct tone which is part of why yeah. i enjoy the movie so much is because it has a distinct tone and message that is so different from the other ones but also why it feels jarring as a part of a trilogy yeah i mean Speaking broadly about these last three Star Wars movies as a unit, seven, eight, nine, it's pretty obvious that there's no plan. Um, I think the the biggest fault with the trilogy as a cohesive uh, unit is that it feels too disconnected in too many ways, and. It's clear that Disney, once they, they, they bought Star Wars for $4 billion. It's like, it's a lot of money. So obviously you want to start making some return on that investment. But when you're jumping way too fast into a series and you don't give it enough time to breathe and figure things out 
and sketch it out, and you're turning out a new movie in this trilogy once every two years, and you're you're jumping dramatically between uh, creative teams on each one, I think you're really going to suffer. Um, I mean, it's it's if you're going to do a trilogy like this where this the cohesive story is so important, like. Nobody gets mad when uh, Mission Impossible 1, 2, and 3 have dramatically different tones because they're very standalone. But when, when the series is built around these, like, blocks, like these big three-movie chunks, like you got the prequels, you got the originals, you got the sequels, you need to think big picture. And it's pretty obvious that, you know, J.J. and Co. made number seven, and then Ryan, almost all on his own, he wrote and directed the whole thing himself, makes number eight, and then J.J. picks up again with number nine, even though he wasn't supposed to at the beginning. It was originally Colin Trevorrow who was going to write and direct it. And then after the Book of Henry comes out, Trevorrow loses that job. Uh, so it's it's like you're, you're jumping between these massive creative teams, and so you don't have this cohesion. Um you know, present that that you that you have in the originals, that you have in the prequels to a lesser extent, but it's just you you don't have like the same sort of. This is what these movies are. This is the arc they're going to follow, because I mean I don't want to talk too much about Rise of Skywalker. But Rise of Skywalker like kills a lot of the arcs that are started in this movie, mm. often for the worse. I think it's not even like. Uh... It, I think frequency is part of it, but like you look at the other Star Wars movies of the time because the way they did this in releases, like major trilogy film, and then the next year, a standalone film, major trilogy film, standalone film. And I think the third standalone got canceled, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so what happens is, um, yeah. So Disney buys Star Wars, and I want to say 2011. They sketch out this like this plan basically to do to do six movies in six years. They're gonna alternate between episode seven, standalone episode eight, standalone episode nine, standalone, and then do something else from there. They don't know what yet. Um, so <laughs> they release episode seven. It's a commercial and it's a critical and commercial hit. Um, audiences primarily are going are really enjoying it. They release Rogue One. And it's a critical and commercial hit. Um, they release uh, Last Jedi. Very divisive amongst audiences. Still a big hit. Critics really like it. So they, they decide to drop Solo, the Han Solo prequel, uh, with minimal marketing. Only five months after The Last Jedi, it tanks. And they're like, well... I guess people don't like these solo Star Wars movies. Let's kill them all. When when it's obviously like more nuanced than that, uh, The Force Awakens first got announced. It was a May 2015 release date. And they pushed it back to December because Har Harrison Ford, he's back, broke his ankle. <laughs> so then they, they set everything back. Everything's going to be December. Except for Solo, which they're like, let's just put it in May with like one trailer and no posters anywhere. <laughs> Star Wars, if you if you handle Star Wars well, it's not going to not be successful at the box office. Mm -hmm. So obviously, it's more because because Rise of Skywalker comes out a year late, a year and a half later, and audiences don't love it, critics don't love it, and it makes over a billion dollars. 
Yeah. So Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's why, aside from like what you call like textual stuff of like the content of the movie itself, it's so interesting and or difficult to talk about Star totally. Wars because totally. it's not just like when we've reviewed or talked about other movies, usually you can just like talk about what happens in the movie. But with something as big as Star Wars, uh, you kind of can't yeah. just talk about the movie, you know? Um, but should we talk about this movie? Like, yes, we should. Actually, to tag back to something that you said a long time ago. Okay. You mentioned that, um, yeah, you said that maybe in 10 years time, we'll be looking back at this trilogy in light of a new trilogy that will have come out and we'll be like, oh, those were the good old days. Mm Mm-hmm. But what I want to say is that in 10 years' time, we shouldn't be comparing these movies with the ones coming out in that time. We should be comparing these movies with the ones that came out before them. Yeah, right? Yes. Just to give various degrees of retrospect a chance. Totally. So let's let's jump into The yeah. Last Jedi. So the movie itself. I have some scant notes slash quotes that I, I have some uh i have three pages of notes so oh I'm, perfect i am ready to go uh i have thoughts mm. red has thoughts are they written in your handy dandy notebook no i, I wish i had a handy dandy notebook that would be so handy dandy we should get monogrammed notebooks together oh <laughs> can we that'd be amazing yes yes um, we can that's the answer. So do you guys want to just like kind of run through the story kind of top to bottom? Yes. Let me cool. pull up a summary because I remember most of. So it begins with a black screen. And then it goes into. There, wait, the, is, there, uh, is there a title crawl? Then it begins with the Lucasfilm logo. <laughs> and then okay. it jumps into. And then the, the Star Wars title appears. And then there's there's the text crawl, which I know that's like one of the most iconic parts of Star Wars. I always forget it's in those movies, so it kind of jump scares me whenever it happens. <laughs> <laughs> right, you gotta read the thing before the movie starts. It's my favorite part of the movie, the part where the movie's actually a book. It's wonderful. <laughs> oh man. Um, I. I, this first part of the movie, for me, the whole bombing run on the Dreadnought, I go crazy for it. I I love this opening action scene. Um, I think uh, Oscar Isaac is, is really funny and charismatic. Um, I think it's just a really well set up sequence in terms of its, in terms of its execution. And like even Rose's sister, she gets like two minutes of screen time, but it's a, it's a it's a really it's a very subtle, very short, very effective character arc. Um, yeah, I I really enjoy that opening action scene. I like that BB-8 is the one who says, "I've got a bad feeling about this" in the movie. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I'm a big, I'm a big sucker for the bombing run. Mm-hmm. Uh, those space battles, love it. I, I think it's, it's really interesting, story-wise, because maybe one of the first times in Star Wars, where a space battle has such a direct consequence or moral implication mm. beyond we blew this thing up or we lost this battle there's this like leia's sense of like oh we just let all these people just died and yeah blew up a ship but at what cost and that's not something that's super explored in star wars usually or at least in the in the, the original movies yeah that's just like this this kind of thematic thing that this movie talks a bit about doesn't really go in depth, but like the cost of war. And I think that that's a big question that Poe's character arc uh, is directly dealing with. It's, it's, you know, how much are you willing to sacrifice? At what point is a sacrifice too much? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I love that shot of right after, you know, the people in the, in the, in the bridge of like the lead uh, resistance ship are cheering and Leia looks down at that screen and there's all those like blotted out fighters and most of their craft that went out they're lost they're dead mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I i enjoy that i think that's tackled much more head-on in andor the tv show mm. but i like those seeds that this that this film is sowing that the whole like stalling tactics thing at the beginning felt a felt a bit just goofy to me, but I can see why someone would like it. it it's, it's totally goofy, and I think in many ways this is the goofiest Star Wars movie, despite it oh, yeah. being, like, the weirdest. And I don't know if all the humor works. I'm okay with that moment at the beginning. I think later on, maybe it gets a little intrusive. But kind of that... Because it's not just, like... For me, it's when humor breaks like the tension or an action too much, mm-hmm. and it kind of pulls you out. But there, because it's so directly related to the action that's actually happening, I give it a pass. Yeah. Well, I feel like that those jokes specifically too are so, I guess, like jarringly modern in a sense. <laughs> Your mom. <laughs> Yeah, it's set up for a your mom joke. Yeah, so like, because we're, even though Star Wars is the future, it's kind of initial thing is kind of trapped in the 70s and 80s, right? Like, yeah. So to hear like a, essentially like a modern joke that you would hear on a playground or something like that definitely feels jarring to be from a Star Wars universe because you feel like it's like other and, and different. But yeah, I, it's, it's the same thing when Poe says later, I wrote this down towards the end of the movie. He's like, they're going to get through that big-ass door. And I'm like, has anybody ever said that before in a Star Wars project? Yeah. Like, if you ever watch Star Wars, they almost never swear. And it's Unless not... it's a, a fictional Star Wars swear. And you don't even notice it until somebody says something like, like a big-ass door, and you're like, yeah. huh, that just doesn't fit. Or, or when, uh, for another modern jokey thing, it's when Yoda says, page turners they are not of the sacred Jedi texts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Which is just so jarring to hear that from Yoda, of all people. It, 
that this is going to be another side tangent, but I don't think it's specifically jarring from Yoda. I just think you haven't heard enough Yoda content um, to see the the range that his character goes over. <laughs> because, like, in the original trilogy, Yoda's crazy. And that Yoda's insane in episode five. And it it is so it's so wild. He says the weirdest things, and then suddenly in one, two, and three, he's like, yeah, pretty, pretty normal and wise. And then like the animated series, he's even like wiser and more sage. And then so you have this period where like, where did he go from like sage to like fully deranged weird? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I to jump ahead to like the second act of this movie. But, uh, yeah, he definitely feels a lot more like original Trilogy Yoda here. Mm-hmm. Even just from, like, the puppetry, um, the fact that he's, like, in in the in the digitally redone version of Phantom Menace and then 2 and 3, he's CG, and he's a lot rounder and a lot yeah. more defined than he is. If you watch episode 5 and you watch episode 8, he's, like, he's so small, and he's so fragile, and he's weird. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the thing that the prequels miss out on is... Uh, Yoda just being a little freak. A little guy. He's just a to beat droids. He doesn't really know what's going on. <laughs> it's also weird to see Yoda with a lightsaber. But whatever. Yeah. Um so anyway, after the bombing run, any more thoughts on the bombing run? I do like the ship design of the bombers. I, I can go in for that um, and how they just like let everything down, which wouldn't happen in space unless there were like thrusters on the bombs. But we're yeah, just but ignore but, physics. I mean, in episode four, why do they have to fly down a trench to get yeah. to the exhaust shaft? Like they don't. This is Star Wars. So I I wrote a note here that says faces drawn on bombs love. Because in a couple of the bombs in the background, they drew, like, little skulls on them, like old World War II bombers. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was a fun little detail. Great production detail. Uh, so the bombing run happens. They jump into hyperspace, presumably escaping. Then we're back on Octo or Octu. Oh, po, uh, Finn wakes up. Yeah, he's got, the, he's got the bag with the water squirting everywhere, yeah. which is an interesting uh, visual. So then we go to it's like back to tank, I guess, yeah. but in a bag. And we got the porgs there. The we got little, the porgs. The My first octu note is the porgs are the best part of this movie. Yes, they are. Which was my third note, and it's something I stand by. Yeah. I I have a I have a pet theory that is actually just truth that every Star Wars new Star Wars IP they purposely make some sort of cute animal thing and that's mostly to do with merchandising so they can sell it at galaxy's edge and disneyland <laughs> yeah so you have bb8 in the force awakens you have the porgs in episode eight and then you have babu frick in uh episode nine yeah um so we're on arc two we have this very controversial moment uh luke grabs the lightsaber throws it over his shoulder walks away Whoa. Yeah, because this is this is big too back in the day because you had just waited uh two years after the last shot in episode seven is Ray holding out the lightsaber to Luke. 
And then, and then it ends. And then it ends. And then you get to this one, you're like, what's he going to do? And then he just throws it away. Which is a moment that doesn't feel as jarring now rewatching it. Maybe it's because I'm also expecting it. But like, when you watch it in this film, you're like, with the pacing, it works. But it definitely, it's like when you're, when you're, you first see this continuation. And of course, this is the thought that's in my mind going into this movie is, well, what's Luke going to do with the lightsaber? Yeah. Because everyone expects him to take it and be like, 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 you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi in the desert on Tatooine. <laughs> be like, I've been waiting for you, Ray. Here, you're actually a Kenobi yourself. And we're going to go fight Darth Vader. I mean, I think I'm just going to kind of jump into my Luke thoughts here. Okay. Um, you know, in the theater, we talk about making the most interesting choice um, because that will give you the most to work with and will engage your audience the most. Doing sad old man Luke is a very strong choice. And maybe in the years since, we're like, okay, we've seen too many old protagonists come back as sad old men. Indiana Jones 5 is just sad old Indiana Jones. Yeah. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think the idea of Luke being this like shriveled up sad hermit is the most interesting decision to make with this character. Because, I mean, everyone's like, well, it's not in character. You know, we saw him in, the, in like Return of the Jedi. He was like a hero and he was like fighting the Emperor. He was like 22. I, I, the last Jedi is set in, in 34 uh, ABY after the Battle of Yavin. I do not expect to be the same person now at the age of 22. I am as old as Luke Skywalker is in Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. If I am the same person with the same opinions and the same attitude, when I'm 52, 54, 55 years old, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I, I, I do not expect for a second that this guy's going to be the same dude that he was 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that, that choice that they make with him. I think... Maybe the problem is that it repeats maybe a few too many of the beats that Han goes through in episode seven. But it's a it's a strong, interesting, for me, compelling choice or characterization to see on screen. Yeah. It also forces it makes him I think this is kind of getting into my more general ideas about the thematic nature of this film. Johnson is very intentional about playing against tropes in star wars mm-hmm. so if ray is like the anti-luke skywalker which i want to get into when we talk about like act two um then luke is like the anti yoda in obi-wan he's not waiting for you in the desert to teach you how to fight he's like leave me alone in the desert i don't want to meet you mm-hmm. i think a broader problem or connection with with interpretations of luke and people being angry about you know changes to luke's character is the fact that disney slash lucasfilm did a whole canon slash lore overhaul after they after they bought it so uh lucasfilm was pretty liberal giving out rights to like books and comics and stuff like that so there's a lot of like 
we now call Star Wars Legends content, which is um, just a ton of stuff. And there's tons of weird stuff that happened too, but there's lots of books that were written about Luke Skywalker and other, you know, Skywalkers that pop up in different Jedi and whatever post episode six. And then Disney comes in and says, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. We're essentially re re rebooting the canon. Only the movies are in it. And then plus the TV shows and stuff. And that's where we have our general canon so far. And I think part of that is because they, well, hundred percent, they wanted to control the characters more to make them more marketable. Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I'm assuming, but a consequence of that is that they really took the reins back of popular characters and so after you've had no new star wars content for a long time other than these like books and movies which in your brain are like this is what luke skywalker does that immediately invites comparison yeah. to everything else yeah and i am rebooting the canon was a good idea mm -hmm. Because most people who are going to see a Star Wars movie in theater probably haven't seen, haven't read the books. I love Star Wars, and I've seen these movies so many times. I've not read the books. I'm never going to read the books. So I think rebooting is a good idea. It's just, yeah, moving away from preconceived notions about a character. Um yeah, I think I think Johnson in this movie is very interested in fallibility and characters who aren't necessarily right all the time or necessarily wrong all the time. Um, yeah, and so I think having Luke be this, this sad old man is an interesting choice. Mm -hmm. I, I wish he survived the movie, but I think his final scene with Kylo Ren is awesome. Yeah. Can I maybe now isn't the right time to ask, but why did he die? Was just like the projection thing? Did that take a lot of energy? Or I I, I think that's what we're supposed to be left to believe. It doesn't spell it out exactly, but like, it's he he dies in the same way that Obi Wan does in Episode Four. He just kind of vanishes into the Force. Mm -hmm. So I think it's probably this thing of like so much exertion of trying to. Uh, I don't know if you guys are great with fictional geographies and knowing where things are in a made-up galaxy, but Crate and Octu are not very close. So it's probably just, you know, the, the, the insane willpower of sending your consciousness and a pair of dice. I think that's a fun <laughs> detail. Yeah. Uh, your consciousness and a pair of dice across the galaxy using only your mind is just like, okay, I'm done. And the Force has been and always will be a malleable magic system in the sense that, yeah, things just kind of happen. You're like, <laughs> he used the Force, and that's okay. Yeah. I, yeah, it, it's, it's very soft in terms of how it works. Yeah. I don't know if Brandon Sanderson would give his approval for that. <laughs> what doesn't uh, it work through, like, these... Force particles, things that were named <laughs> no, at some point. Let's I, talk about midi chlorians now. Oh, I, I think midi chlorians and the idea of bloodlines is the stupidest thing ever. 
And I do not forgive George Lucas for that. I know people are trying to like redeem the prequels and pretend they were good. They're bad movies. Have you seen? They're bad. It's not about the prequels, but I do not agree with prequel redeemers, prequel apologists in any sense. They're no. not good. I agree. That's, <laughs> I, to, <laughs> to bring it back to Luke Skywalker. The Force is so less cool when you have bugs yeah. in your blood that determine whether or not you can use it. Yeah. Ugh. You know, now that you put it like that, it sounds like a racist thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly! It's, yeah. it's like, it's who your parents are. Instead of, like, the idea... I think the, like, the idea that Johnson has of the Force of being this, like... Which he's pulling straight from episode five of like this thing that's there. And instead of it being, you know, something that you're born with, you have to like reach out and 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 take it, you know, like like connect to it. I think that's the whole idea of the very final shot of the movie of Broom Boy. Mm -hmm. Um is that heroes are everywhere and they can come from anywhere, and that's awesome. Yeah, well that that's always been the fundamental base message of star wars even if it pulls heavily from like hero's journey um sure. farm boy pulled from obscurity kind of thing i mean george kind of, lucas very openly loved the hero's journey yeah of like yeah the, the heroism can come from anywhere and that it's about accepting the mantle and and putting yourself forth rather yeah. than than being forced to do things um i think one of the interesting things that connects back to Luke Skywalker too is, um, at one point he tells Ray that the Force does not belong to the Jedi, um, mm -hmm. and so if you strip away the myth and look at the deeds, the legacy of the Jedi is failure, hypocrisy, hubris, which is a pretty big and uh, damning uh, judgment on the Jedi Order, but probably fundamentally true at the time of their their fall in in the canon um and i think part of disney's big reorientation with the or part of star wars's big new canon is that idea that the force is beyond something it's not it's not just about the jedi it's about the force being one yeah with everything in the galaxy so yes jedi are using it and they're the dominant religion or whatever but the force is not necessarily a good thing that is allied with the Jedi is just something that exists in the uh, mm -hmm. in the universe. Yeah, it's that it's one of my favorite parts of this movie uh, because I think it harkens back to Episode Five is when Ray has that vision of of the island and kind of this 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 understanding of of the force of the force as nature as this tension that holds all things of life and death of heat of cold of light and dark and i think that's a really beautiful idea that the movie um has it's it's really interesting too having read some of the books um specifically the stuff uh the high republic stuff so a couple years mm -hmm. ago um they launched a new era of jedi content called the star wars the high republic which takes place thousands of years before the uh, original trilogy so basically they can kind of do whatever they want um i think or maybe just hundreds of years i don't remember i think yoda's really young at that point yeah it's in. like somewhere between knights of the old republic and um the movies yeah so in, i'm gonna find out right now 
in in those books there's there's these wonderful descriptions of the force as as we get perspective changes of different jedis talking about how they interact with the force and like some of them hear it as as music and when they interact with the force it feels like they're joining into one big chorus and one big note whether while there's another one that sees it as an ocean or there's a wookie that sees it as a big tree or a big interconnected forest and i and i love that kind of that natural imagery of the force of something that each person mm -hmm. sees differently and connects to differently. Okay. It's uh, the high Republic is five to 100 years before the Skywalker saga begins. Okay. I'm going to be honest when it was first announced and I saw star Wars, the high Republic, I'm like movies. I got really excited. And then I was like, Oh, novels. Okay. I'm never going to read those because <laughs> reading is for loot. And that's not true. I love reading. I love reading. I prefer to watch my Star Wars and read like stuff that's not Star Wars. Yeah, Star Trek. And you know what? I mean, I mean as we noted earlier, Yoda would would approve. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I wonder yeah. what Yoda's Goodreads is. <laughs> I I also love. I think one of the things that works so well with the Luke Skywalker arc. Uh, is also one line from Yoda where he says, Skywalker, still looking to the horizon and never looking here. Huh. Which is, on yeah. one hand, actually like legitimately funny because classic Luke is always gazing at the sun and just looking directly yeah, into the it's sunset. It's like the most famous shot of the first movie. Mm -hmm. But it also is emblematic of the broader theme that is throughout of he's always gazing to the horizon and looking like, I wish things could be better and I wish I had made different decisions whether that's in like episode 4 wish he had gone to Tashi station to get the power converters or uh, you know a second thing <laughs> <laughs> uh, not kissing his sister or <laughs> you know uh, having spent more time trying to convert Darth Vader or having been able to reconnect with his father at some point and then all the way up to you know wishing he had made different decisions but learning to live with the failure too and i think mm. it's it's really interesting how divisive the treatment of luke is when like i feel like thematically it is so very clear to the point where it's almost too clear what Johnson is going for, because Yoda literally says um, those lines about failure. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, did my words not, did you? Pass on what you have learned. Strength, mastery, but weakness, folly, failure also. Yes, failure most of all. Mm. The greatest teacher failure is Luke, we are what they grow beyond. That is the true burden of all masters. And that's what the movie is about. And people like Luke Skywalker is terrible in this one and he's not a hero. And I'm like, but that is the point. And that's what they're going for. And so I just like, if the only reason you're mad about Luke Skywalker's character in this is that it doesn't match the like preconceived notion of the character. I'm just not sure that is something that I can 
understand. Like, of course, I think there's an interesting way to do Luke as a hero. And I probably mm. would have enjoyed that as well. But this is what we have. And like you said, Seth, it is a bold choice. And it is ultimately an interesting one that makes for a good Star yeah. Wars narrative. So we we have a bit on Act 2. Act 2. Uh, shot on a real island in Ireland. That's pretty cool. You can go visit Octu. Yeah. Uh, oh, but cool. there's they only allow like forty people onto that island at a time because it's so fragile, like the ecosystem. Oh, huh. Yeah. Uh, but it's a real place. That um, is the interesting thing about Star Wars is they're like, look at these like other worlds, and it's like everything is on Earth. We got to remember yeah. that. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think for me, that's one of my one thing I'm really happy with 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 a lot of the sequels is how much they use practical locations. Mm -hmm. I think that's the reason why The Last Jedi looks really great and Rogue One looks really great and The Force Awakens mm -hmm. looks really great and Solo looks okay and Rise of Skywalker looks fine. Um, <laughs> is, is that they use a lot of these real locations and they use the majesty of creation to like, you know, just, oh wow, it's a crazy alien planet. It's actually Ireland, but it looks really cool. Mm -hmm. So we catch up now with Kylo Ren. He goes to Snoke. Exactly. He goes to Snoke and um, Snoke's like, uh, you're an idiot. Uh, yep. You're a loser. Um, I wrote down here, uh, Adam Driver milks every scene he's in and I love it. Yeah. Because Adam Driver is a uh, Constantly at 100 in terms of his emotionals, yes. in terms of his emotionals, emotions. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I, I mean, the past is probably like the idea of the past and what does the past mean is one of like the core thematic concepts that this film wants you to wrestle with. And Snoke is even using that too, kind of this like twisted version of uh, Yoda, where he he uses like the image of Darth Vader as this like threat over kylo ren um he has this line that's just you're no darth vader mm -hmm. um just like this this you're you're not as good as the people you want to imitate um yeah the the line is i, I wrote it down is you're no vader you're just a child in a mask exactly um i remember when my mom first saw the force awakens one of her biggest comments was, yeah, but then when that the, the villain Kylo Ren takes off his mask, it's just this, like, beautiful young guy. And I think that's kind of, like, the point with that bit in The Force Awakens and yeah. with this movie, too, where it's like, he has this mask that's supposed to look so cool. But he's just a dude. Like, mm -hmm. he's not... He wants to be... He's a wannabe Vader. Um, yeah, he's just... Yeah... Adam Driver's great. I love Adam Driver. I really like him in this movie. Yeah. Uh, he's just, he's, Adam Driver has figured out the melodrama of Star Wars. Star Wars is very melodramatic, mm -hmm. and that's a, a strength. I say that as praise. And Adam Driver's figured that out and really leans into it. Like, he is just on the verge of tears in every scene. Yeah. <laughs> I know this comes later. Um, one of the funniest scenes, I think, in star wars is that the shirtless scene <laughs> later <laughs> in the movie. 
And it is just the most, I remember when it came out, it was still the most bizarre scene in <laughs> Star Wars, but yeah. it's super funny because he's got these really high pants that make him look really, like, square. And... Yeah. No words. It's a very strange sight. Yeah. Talking about the evil guys, I want to come back to Kylo Ren, but I want to talk about him and Rey. Um... I, I really enjoy Andy Serkis as Snoke in this movie. Well, that's Andy Serkis? I, uh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's Andy Serkis in a mocap suit. What a guy. Uh, <laughs> Back at it again. <laughs> yeah. And then he appeared again in Andor. So, yeah. this time not in a mocap suit. I, I know people are like, oh, we never got any explanation for Snoke. Uh, he died like a loser. I'm going to be honest. Snoke gets as much characterization as the Emperor does in Return of the Jedi. Nobody cares that the Emperor has no characterization in Return of the Jedi because that's not his function. His function is just to be evil. Yeah. Um, I think like the scarred face and like these force powers imply something. But I kind of like I like the ambiguity. I think that's interesting. I think Circus is really good. Um Yeah, he he's he's I, I'm always impressed with how Snoke looks in these movies. I think he, he looks really good in this. Yeah. Um, my favorite Snoke shot is when he's dead and he's lying on the floor and his like tongue's half hanging out. I think that shot looks really good. Yeah, it's it's a interesting you mentioned that about like his origin story because Star Wars is one of those bizarre things where like the Force is such a loosey goosey magic system, but also there's such this insistence or want to know every single thing about the timeline and exactly what is behind everything. I think part of that is just a consequence of having so many projects out there, kind of like Marvel now of like, mm -hmm. you know, they hint at these tiny details and, you know, of course you want to, you want to know about it, but I think it's just an interesting dichotomy in, in the universe of like, yeah. want to know how these specific things work, but also let's not think about physics, you know? Totally. You think about the interesting parts. Mm -hmm. I, I I think it's also personally. I think it was a wise decision to kill off Snoke in this movie. I think otherwise the problem is is that you feel like you've just got Emperor Two. Yeah. The conflict that this movie sets up, where this this very young, very unstable, very impressionable, insecure guy is running this like galaxy spanning force is way more interesting. And then they totally undercut it in episode nine. But the idea that Kylo Ren is like desperately trying to hold on to power is a really interesting concept to begin the uh, alternate, universe, alternate universe version of episode nine that Ryan Johnson directed and uh, wrote. So uh, one of the Gleasons is in this movie. I always forget which one. Dominal? Dominal. Yeah. Dominal. Um, he is also just chewing scenery this entire time. You have three very scenery-chewing villains, mm -hmm. and I really appreciate it. The, 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 I mean, from, from that first scene, he's just so, he's so angry, and he's so, Argh. So angsty. Um, All the villains are angsty, and I love so it. So angsty. It's so entertaining. I, I love just the, the tension between hip, between Hux and Kylo Ren in like the third act. It's just such a, 
a messed up dynamic. Yeah, there's um, this uh, there's this solitary shot of Hux looking in the throne room. That's like, what happened here? And then he sees Kylo Ren starts to open his jacket to pull out his blaster, and then Kylo Ren suddenly wakes up, and then Hux just like quickly closes his yeah. jacket and is like, "Supreme Leader, great to see you." <laughs> Um, yeah, so, I mean, one, one of the big parts of this villain, uh, this villain, this film, in terms of its, of its, um, villain, Kylo Ren, is that he shares this force connection with Rey that, uh, I mean, Snoke sets up, but it's implied by the end that maybe they still have it. Um, and this is how Kylo and Rey frequently speak to each other, um, so that Kylo Ren can be this corrupting influence on Rey while she is a positive influence on him and they're kind of pulled together to this like weird equilibrium between the light and the dark. It's technically um, called a force dyad. Uh, okay, a force dyad. Um, um, it's one I, of my sorry. least favorite force features just because... Oh yeah? Ah. Uh, it's one of those things that was kind of like shoehorned and made. It's like, wouldn't it be cool if they did this? And then just like midichlorians, they gave it a name and a reason. And yeah. that just kind of, yeah. I mean, I mean, Johnson's motivation for this, when, when he's spoken about the film, is that he wanted a way for, for Ray and Kylo Ren to interact because that's an interesting relationship. And mm. Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley are really good together. But he could not allow them to fight yeah which is we, we we see this in in rise of skywalker where using the force connection they fight each other and that defeats the whole purpose the whole point is that they're like trapped in space yeah and they can't really escape each other but there's this there's this connection yeah so i i think it's it's an interesting narrative thing but because it's star wars then especially in episode nine i'm not gonna talk about that too much gets bogged oh, down in talk about episode nine. the reasoning and the like there was actually a prophecy and that kind of things and like so i think sometimes we don't have to explain things we don't have to explain it it's cool and now the fact that it's called the force dyad is burned in my brain permanently so yeah. there you go um, there is one really cool shot uh, right before the Force Dyad scene happens. It's one of my favorite moments in the movie, um, where Rey is on Actu and she steps out from the Millennium Falcon and it's raining, and you see this moment where she like sticks her hand out like kind of tentatively towards the mm -hmm. rain, and she just gets like really excited. Like she doesn't say anything, but she's just like smiling and super happy as like the water falls on her and just this idea of water falling from the sky. Is is still novel for her, given that she spent you know her entire life before you know two weeks ago uh, on a desert planet. Yeah. So um, then we get into a pretty big chunk of the film that's set on the planet. I wrote it down. Cantonica. The city is Canto Bite, but the planet is called Cantonica. Um, it takes a while for Finn and for his new pal Rose Tico, who uh, 
I just want to say, after this movie was released, uh, Kelly Marie Tran got bullied off of social media yeah. because of the uh, vitriolic reactions to her character in this film. Um, so uh, even if you don't like a character, uh, don't bully people on social media because they're an actor. Yep, and sadly not the first Star Wars actor who has experienced that either. It happened to Jake Lloyd, and it happened to the guy who played Jar Jar Binks, whose name I don't know. I'm at best. I'm at best. Um, yeah. So, this is, a this is, Canto Bite is one of the controversial sections of the film, I feel like I keep saying this, (laughs) but, um, not everybody loves it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... I I liked Justin Theroux's cameo. I think Benedicio del Toro is a funny little freak. <laughs> I'm not sure how well the subplot works, but uh, Benedicio del Toro is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I think this is this is one of the parts that, yeah, for overall pacing and insertion into the storyline just doesn't work super well for me. Although I wouldn't go as far as some people who think that it should just totally be removed. I think it's an important subplot, or at least it continues the themes of the movie well enough that I enjoy it. And that's where we get like Broom Boy and the setup to like the very final shot of the movie, which is really cool and and a wonderful ending. I'm just not sure that the whole subplot of we spent all this time for a plan that essentially doesn't work later. Maybe that's what it is of like it, the the subplot doesn't feel narratively rewarding. And I think that there's a really key reason that I want to touch on as we get into Act Three why I think it doesn't feel super rewarding. I mean, what 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 Johnson is going for is he wants to have a subplot that explores in some way the economics and the ethics of war in the Star Wars universe. Yeah. That all these people are super rich because they make money off of selling uh, TIE fighters to the First Order and X-Wings to the uh, Rebellion. That would never happen in real life. Never. It has never happened before. Lockheed Martin has never done anything morally questionable. Uh, Weapons traders do not make ungodly amounts of money by selling to both the U.S. military and the Taliban. It's never happened before. The U.S. government has never funded a terrorist group. Just throwing that out there. Um, It'll make this editing really hard because I I don't want to cut that out. But also... War is always justifiable if the United States is fighting in it. Uh, Damn, (laughs) Oh, if you would like to complain about one of Seth's jokes... (laughs) Um, we'll the email later. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I mean, yeah, so that's what he's thematically going for. Its integration into the narrative uh, is a little questionable because, again, it feels like a fetch quest. Yeah. And I, I think whenever you do a fetch quest in a movie, it always, it's, it's a little, it's, it's a reason why I don't love episode nine because the whole movie is just a fetch quest. Like, we gotta go get the thing. I think there's some great stuff that's said on Count to Bite. I think the whole thing, when they let those, like, space horses out, mm-hmm. and they're just tearing through the casino, 
and there's like the opera lady scream singing as the horses are chasing in and the bars get overturned and you see all those wonderful alien designs it's great i just don't know if it works as well as it should yeah um but it is shot in a real place uh it's shot in croatia the <laughs> same city where they shot the scenes set in King's Landing in Game of Thrones. Wow. Yeah. So lovely. Yeah. Wait, where was this in the movie? Uh, this is, you know, the when they go to the casino planet? Oh, okay. Yeah. So that city, Canto Bight, is actually shot in Durbanville, Croatia. I think I uh, didn't write that down right or I'm mispronouncing it. Is that near but, the Palace of Diocletian? Could not tell you. Oh, okay. By the way, that's that cool. I'm going to check off my thinking about the Roman Empire for this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the one thing, like I mentioned earlier, that works really well in this Canto Bite scene is when they're in when they are releasing those space horses and they encounter the kids and they show them the resistance or the rebellion logo yeah. and kind of introduce that theme of anyone can be a hero and the allies are out there, but they just need to be mobilized. Exactly. Um, and I mean, all those allies who get mobilized, we do meet in the next movie, yeah. which is pretty cool. Um, even though it feels a little hopeless by the end of this one. Yeah. Um, does anybody have any strong feelings about Rose Tico? Because, of course, she was added to this film. Uh, actually, from what I can remember, I think, people gotta fact check me, because I, I hear stories and I think they're true, but sometimes I half remember them or sometimes they're not true. What I heard is that initially the Canto Bite subplot was going to be Poe and Finn. Except the problem in the writing was that Poe and Finn were too similar as characters. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't enough contrast between them. And so then they added Rose to replace Poe, and then Poe got his own subplot. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. It does, um, that does kind of remind me, though, of, I think, like, near the end when Ray finally, I, I, yeah, near the end of the movie, Ray and Poe finally meet for the first time. Yeah. And you realize, oh, yeah, these two big main characters have never met each other. Did not meet. Yep. It is really interesting. So it's this real kind of subversion of... Um, the original trilogy where the original trilogy's got like the three dudes and they all hang out you know you got your luke your lay and your han mm -hmm. and they're the three heroes and they chill this series doesn't really have that like poe finn and ray i guess are like the face are like the main three heroes but they don't like do anything together until the third movie mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I have any particular strong feelings about her character, 
I think if if Finn and, and Poe had gone together, it, the side plot wouldn't have worked as well. But I don't think, like we've talked about, it, the side plot worked super amazing anyway. So it, it's kind of hard to say either way for me. Yeah. The last character I guess we haven't really spoken a whole lot about is Poe Dameron. Um, who's who's grounded for most of this movie, um, which I think is an interesting choice. Uh, I think, you know, when you have this idea of, like, this, like, guy is a great pilot, you know, forcing him to be like, hey, your ship blew up. You can't fight. You can't just jump into a bomber and fight. You got to find something else to do. And that's like a, that's an almost literal quote from the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Pulling language from Leia. Um, um, uh, there are things you can't solve by jumping in an X-Wing and blowing something up. Exactly. I mean... I think that one of the subplots that I really enjoy, I think the one subplot that works really, really well, or maybe, I guess, would it be a main plot of, like, Laura Dern and uh, Oscar Isaac interacting? I mean, I guess there's, like, four plot lines in this movie that it follows. Yeah. So they're each a subplot, but they each together make the plot. Yeah. I, uh, I guess I'll just say the part of the plot that really works for me in this movie is Oscar Isaac versus Laura Dern. First of all, Laura Dern, incredible actress. I love Laura Dern. I always sacrifice my whole life to be with Laura Dern. Um, and Laura Dern's great. Yeah, there is, there is, you have to bring up your your suspension of disbelief a little bit to just be like okay because in real life maybe we sh she would be like poe i know you're freaking out right now so let me tell you my plan just a little bit but i think I, i'm not sure that that like based on how his character was acting i'm not even sure that would have helped he would have still been like no that's a dumb plan i'm gonna i'm gonna do my own thing yeah i mean I think that is the choice that for me kind of throws Poe's subplot off is is like, well, okay, why didn't Holdo just tell him? Yeah. And there really isn't a good answer. Is, no. Is, uh, is the problem. Although I think it's important for Poe's character to experience that of like, he's used to being an underdog, but I think like we've talked about a little bit, mm. not super used to failure in the yeah. sense of like, He's like, we're the good guys. We just blew up Starkiller base, but we're also all almost dead. And I just blew up this dreadnought. And that was sick. Uh, mm. All my friends are dead now. And we're all rapidly dying. What are we going to do about that? And so he's reconciling for the first time with the fact that, like, they're actually losing. And this is not fun. Which I think is kind of why, I mean, Finn and Rose also end up their plan doesn't go well. Yeah. Like nobody's plan really works out in this movie. Everything just kind of ends in a way that's just really kind of frustrating, which I, I think this movie shares the most in common with episode five. Yeah. And it has that sort of same, when you watch episode five on its own, it's got a really dark ending. Mm -hmm. It's like the rebels are losing. Everybody's dying. Dang. And it's a similar sort of ending this film comes to. Yeah. Um, although, honestly, I think this is a little bit more optimistic than 
Empire is, because at least, you know, the Resistance gets this final battle with the First Order where they escape and they, you know, Luke Skywalker does this heroic sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and they, they blow up some TIE fighters. It's great. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just that, you know, things don't always work out. I guess I wish that Poe wasn't in that last fight in a, in a sense, like in one of those things. Because mm. at the end of the movie, he still hops into, uh, he doesn't hop into X-Wing, but he hops into one of those land scooters yeah. and blows stuff up. Although ultimately he makes the decision, I guess, which, which is more to conserve the life of his crew or his squad and be like, guys, no, we're not blowing this up. Everybody get back into the base. Yeah. We're going to find a different plan. So I think that works. Yeah. Um, Kylo Ren's got this great line towards the end of the second act. Uh, let the past die. Kill it if you have to. It's the only way to become uh, who you are meant to be. Um, which... So melodramatic, but like... So melodramatic. Such a great line. Yeah. I think it kind of hits the crux of the movie. Um... I don't, I, don't, I don't want to say he's right, because I don't think he's right. But I think it's just that, how do we treat our past? How do we treat our failure? Well, I think it's it's like, you know, like you talk about, there's lots of inversion of tropes in here. And like, this is like the anti-Yoda or the anti-Luke Skywalker in this case of Luke and Kylo Ren are feeling very similar about failure. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, but then they both get into this this resolve of, Kylo Ren kills Andy Serkis's character. Luke Skywalker, you know, burns down or attempts to burn burn down this like sacred Jedi temple, and then Kylo Ren gets to uh, kill the past, and then Yoda tells Luke, uh, "Learn from the past and pa learn from the past and and pass it on, pass on mm -hmm. your failures." So, yeah, I. <laughs> I appreciate that the Sacred Jedi texts didn't actually get destroyed. Yeah. Because there's this two-second shot right at the end of the movie where Poe opens up... No, Finn opens up a drawer in the Millennium Falcon, and there's there's the Jedi texts. They're there. Ray scooped him before she left. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming... I'm assuming, like, Yoda maybe knew that and was more making a point. Like, yeah, obviously. don't need these. Yeah, like get but, over yourself, man. But it turns out you kind of did need them, I guess. Oh, so. I guess. Yeah, they probably sell for a lot at an auction or something. <laughs> no. What do you? Uh, and, and we talked a little bit about Ray, but I don't think we've talked a whole lot about Ray. If you want to quickly jump into that. Yeah, I mean, I mean the 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 big, the controversial thing. Every character has a controversial thing that happens to them in this movie. Yeah. The controversial thing that happens to Ray, which I think is the best part of this movie, is Ray discovering who her parents were. Mm -hmm. They were junk traders who sold you off for drinking money. Yeah. And again, Ryan Johnson has explained this because because this whole thing is, you know, Ray in the first movie, she's got mysterious parents. So obviously people are like, oh my goodness, she's actually a Skywalker. She's actually a Kenobi. She's actually Mace Windu's daughter. She's actually, uh, she's actually Kiati Mundy's daughter. She's actually Kit Fisto's daughter. Yeah. She's actually related to General Grievous. 
She's actually related to, you know, Han Solo. She's actually related to uh, Yoda. She's actually related to Baby Yoda. She's actually related, like, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The way Ryan Johnson views this twist is he says it's the exact same thing that happens to Luke in episode five. Oh, interesting. Because, because episode five, Luke has built his whole worldview over these two movies around he's going to get revenge on the guy who killed his dad. Mm-hmm. The worst thing he could hear in the final, in, the, in his fight with Darth Vader is surprise. I am your dad. <laughs> it's it's the worst possible thing because his whole worldview that he is fighting someone evil to defend the man he, you know, the 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 his his unknown father has been totally crushed. Mm. Everything he thought he was is gone. And now he has to wrestle with a new reality. And the way Johnson views it uh is like this is the exact same thing that happens to Ray. Ray has convinced herself that her parents are out there, that she's someone special. And these movies have validated it because she's extremely gifted with the force and she beat Kylo Ren easily. And, you know, she's she's the one who found Luke Skywalker after 35 years. But the worst thing she could hear is your parents aren't special. You're not special. Because mm-hmm. her, her whole sense of my identity is out there crushes and it crumbles she is just ray from jakku and that's it mm-hmm. she's not ray skywalker she's not ray palpatine she's just ray yeah. i think that sets up a more interesting character arc for number nine where now her identity is not based on other people but it is becoming a hero on her own terms which I think episode nine totally messes with, but it's an interesting yeah. way to end this movie is yeah. to be like, Ray has to forge her own identity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it would have been any better, but in Colin Trevorrow's draft for star Wars episode nine titled star, star Wars duel of the fates. Um, that was very much her character arc was becoming uh, a Jedi on her own terms. Yeah. I think I think Daisy Ridley's really great in this. I really enjoy Ray's character arc in this. Um, I think everything she has with Kylo Ren, kind of her desperation to save him, everything she has with Luke, and like a de- she she's just trying to save two dudes this whole movie. I could change him. <laughs> I could change both of them. Um, yeah, it's I not I, even it's not even as bad as I could fix him. It's just her entire character. I could fix them. <laughs> yeah, I could do it. I could make this guy a hero again, and I can pull this guy out of... I can restore this broken relationship. They need the Jedi. We just need therapy. Dudes would rather uh, go to remote planets in the outer <laughs> rim than go to therapy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, those are my Ray thoughts. Yeah. I don't know if you have anything uh, super pressing about Ray. Not really. I think, yeah, kind of similar. The whole, I really, yeah, the, your parents aren't special thing is really, yeah. Now that, now you mentioned the kind of the analog with, with Luke Skywalker in episode five is really interesting and a cool mm-hmm. uh, turn of, turn of events as well. Yeah. 
And I mean, to to give some credit to episode nine, I think I would have preferred it if they had kept it having her no parents. But the whole another point of contention for people in the trilogy is uh, her taking up the Skywalker name at the end. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can take that or leave that. But I think in in a roundabout way that comes back down to uh, like she forges her own identity as a as a Jedi and chooses yeah. to be, you know, I'm going to make the Skywalker name, which stands for hope and freedom in the, in the Jedi order. And then she takes up that mantle. I'm I'm still a little, little torn about that. I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be. But I also think that just mm-hmm. having her be a nobody would have been much more effective regardless yeah. of like but like the Skywalker name is too powerful to uh, to not mm-hmm. pick up. I feel like so. Yeah. Um. Gwendolyn Christie is tragically underutilized in yeah both episode seven and episode eight. She's a great actress. She's excellent on Game of Thrones. She is excellent in The Sandman. Uh, I wish she was in more of these movies. Yep. Yep. There's not much more to say. She's in it for like two minutes, so. And then she dies, so. Yeah. Hate to see it. <laughs> how do you, how do you feel about, um, I'm going to bring this up now. I'm not sure if this yeah. is where it is, but how do you feel about flying uh, flying space Leia? Oh, yeah. Um, fine. I, I, I mean... Leia's relationship to the Force is not really developed well in this trilogy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in Episode Nine, they're like surprised she was actually learning how to use the Force and be a Jedi. Um, I don't know. I'm not offended by it. I think it makes sense that she's Force sensitive, given that midichlorians are a thing. And who her father was. I wish that that was more a part of her character. I wish she was in this movie more. Uh, but definitely not opposed to it. Yeah, it's it's one of those Star Wars things where if you like, if you zoom out just a little bit and see all the other crazy stuff that's happening in these movies, it is just one bullet point. Yeah, on on a list of crazy things that happen throughout all the movies so yeah but of course the other big controversial thing that happens in space before right before we get into act three and we wrap up the movie um is the holdo maneuver Mm. how do you feel about the holdo maneuver i think visually we've talked a little bit about this but i think last jedi is one of the most visually stunning movies so good just some incredible visuals they use effects so well they use uh practical locations so well uh the camera work is like super energetic and creative yeah it's one of the i think i think it's one of the best directed movies in the series like johnson's just in terms of it's like it's like pacing and editing and um like how it shoots its action scenes great yeah so like when you get to the holder maneuver and you see the ship like break apart and there's no sound. Mwah. Like uh love it. 
And I think I feel fine about it. If you really want to get into the weeds about like, how does fast, I was going to say fast travel, how does light speed work? And would it happen like that? We just like, there's, it's another thing that has played really loosey goosey throughout the, mm. the franchise of they just can kind of go to light speed whenever. And there doesn't seem to be a ton of rules about it. And sometimes, yeah. so doesn't make sense. I don't know. It's cool though. So I'm inclined to go with like the rule of cool of like, that's a great scene. And that's also important to pose character arc as well of he's used to, to blowing stuff up and always surviving out the other end and looking out like sometimes running away is that is the strategy so yeah i was reading a bunch of uh justifications for it on the internet the other day mm. either critiques of it and justifications of it and there's kind of two there's two schools of people who who like the hold on maneuver there are people who go well actually in universe it could work if you follow these principles of hyperspace travel and all that sort of stuff and then there's the other camp of people who are like it looked cool i'm fine yeah <laughs> Um, I think you definitely can justify it in universe. Uh, I think it's cooler just as a crazy maneuver, and yeah. it, it it looks awesome. Um, yeah, I guess the mechanics of hyperspace are always a little iffy in the Star Wars movie. I know in the shows, in the comics, in the in the books, in the whatever they explain a little bit more. In the movies, it's kind of hazy. because yeah. um, like in the first movie. Only, like, the Millennium Falcon and, like, the Death Star, they could jump to hyperspace because they got these real big engines, but then, like, the TIE Fighters can't. But then Episode Five, the X-Wing can. How does it work? I don't know. It's fake. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of reasons why TIE Fighters can't do it. But also, think about Star Wars without faster-than-light travel. Just doesn't work. Like, that would be so boring. <laughs> Yeah, it would be. It would be incredibly boring. Um, so we have the hold on maneuver. Very controversial. And then we get to the third act, the battle on Crate. So good. Uh, I love the way Crate looks. I think like like the white surface, but then you rip it off and there's like red. Great. What a vibe. What a vibe. I like Gareth Edwards' cameo in this movie. Uh, the director of, Gareth Edwards, the director of Rogue One is in this film. He appears very briefly. Uh, there is a shot kind of early into the crate sequence where these where these two guys are, are these two resistance fighters are behind uh, a trench and they got their guns out. And the one who's kind of in the foreground licks the ground and goes, it's salt. The guy behind him is Gareth Edwards. Oh, that's say cool. Anything. Yeah. So they, they traded cameos. Uh, Ryan Johnson is a uh, a Death Star operator in Rogue One. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love the Battle of Crate. I think it's it looks really great. Um, I love the bit where there's like those three TIE fighters coming straight towards Poe, and then the Millennium Falcon out of nowhere just snipes them all in one foul swoop. It's great. Um, I like that the Porgs have been brought over uh, onto the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, there's this there's this line that like either Poe yeah Poe says is like, 
wow, she drew them all off. And then Finn's like, yeah, they really hate that ship, which kind of pulls you out a little bit, but also like, yes. Yeah, they do. (laughs) All these fascist empires really hate the Millennium Falcons. The Millennium Falcons have done some terrible things to the Empire. Um, There is the weird kiss between Rose and Finn. Um... What, Which, Star I mean, doesn't get... with, what Star Wars without a weird kiss, though? Like... I mean, yeah, it happens in Episode 4 and in Episode 5, too. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it is weird, but also that's Star Wars for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah, they, they get out of the crystal case. Luke appears one last time. Um, and we there get, is once Luke appears, probably the most incredible scene for Dom Hell Gleason and uh, Adam Driver together. My! Both being super melodramatic yep. and cheeky. Love it. Yep, he's he's so angry. Kylo Ren fights Luke. It's not a proper lightsaber duel though, because they never actually cross blades. Really? Yeah, it is like the only mainline Star Wars film without a real lightsaber fight. They they like yeah, but they they Luke never like strikes at or defends himself from a blow from Kylo Ren. He just jumps out of the way. They they cross lightsabers at one point though. Like Luke is holding it, he's pushing, isn't he? Luke doesn't do anything. Luke just like stands and moves. It's Kylo Ren who's initiating all the violence in that sequence. Because Luke's not actually there. So, like, when he tries to go stab him, except Luke kisses Leia again. (laughs) (laughs) And you are right. They they never actually lock lightsabers. Yeah. I guess I uh, the insinuation there. Now that I'm rewatching the scene, is that Luke is literally just. A presence with no substance and that's yeah. that's the thing that's another cool thing we didn't really talk about luke doesn't leave any footprints on the uh yeah exactly on on the white and so he's not actually there so he can't actually uh hit uh hit kylo ren yeah i i really enjoy so they they get onto the millennium falcon and they do their whole thing they get out and then the very last shot of the movie is broom boy from earlier uses the force kind of holds the broom like a jedi and then that's Mm. where we leave off and that is wonderful kind of flourish off the end of the film and the theme about you know ray being no one and the force being for everyone yeah and it's this weird you know open-ended ending to the star wars movies and they never made a ninth one and uh, it was kind of ambiguous and strange, but an interesting creative choice. Yeah. I wonder if they'll ever make an episode nine. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm not sure. Maybe in the future. <laughs> I, I think it would be really interesting if we did one where, like, Emperor Palpatine came back and somehow Palpatine returned. <laughs> David, I think that'd make a billion dollars. <laughs> I think so, too. All right. 
Well, I think we have run through everything. This might be a long episode, so let's whatever. Let's hit it off with favorite mm, favorite scene, moment, theme, whatever you want to do for our end. Favorite moment scene. Uh, I mean, the porgs are my favorite part of this movie. Amen. Um, my favorite scene is probably Ray and Kylo Ren in the throne room with Snoke. Specifically the, and he turns his lightsaber to strike his true enemy. Yeah. And he dies. Great. I was really fond about the whole scene with the um, the sacred Jedi texts where <laughs> this conversation between Luke and Yoda and Yoda just appears as this ghost and I'll just read some of the lines. Master Yoda, young Skywalker. I'm ending all of this. The tree, the text, the Jedi. I'm going to burn it all down. Ah, Skywalker. Missed you, have I. So it is time for the Jedi Order to end. Time it is for you to look past a pile of old books. Hmm? The sacred Jedi texts? Oh, read them, have you? Page turners, they were not. Yes, yes, yes. Wisdom they held, but that library contained nothing the girl Ray does not already possess. Skywalker, still looking to the horizon, never here now. Hmm. The need in front of your nose. Mm. I was weak, unwise. Lost Ben Solo, you did. Lose Ray, we must not. And then there's this thing that we already talked about with the failure. But that scene, like it, there was that bit of humor which seemed out of place for me. But it was a sweet scene. It was a compelling scene. And also, we talked a bit about kind of this more democratic almost idea of the force of it running through all things rather than being this literal blood thing. And I think that this kind of continues it. Like, it's, you don't need to read these esoteric texts to get what really matters from the Jedi religion. It's always already latent within you. And I think that's very meaningful. Uh, I'm a big fan. Oh, man. Probably similar to Brett. Um, the Yoda talking about failure. Oh, like, and then I think yeah. specifically having Luke and looking at the double sunset. Mm-hmm. And that line of always looking towards the horizon and that being a theme for for yeah. Luke is wonderfully nostalgic. I also really enjoy the moment earlier in the film where he meets R2-D2 and then R2-D2 plays the clip of Leia from episode yeah. four. That's weaponized nostalgia done really well. Because it's weaponized against a character in the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, Porgs. Porgs. You can't, you can't get enough of them. You cannot go wrong with a Borg. Thanks for listening to Mandatory Media, everyone. If you want to send us a message, suggest a topic, or complain about one of Seth's jokes, you can send us an email at mandatorymediapod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at uh, mandatorymediapod. Our new logo is designed by Michelle Tang. Our music is composed by Christopher Whitford, and the episode is recorded, edited, and mixed by yours truly. 
If you would like to see any more of my work, you can visit linktree slash Brett V. That is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash B-R-E-T. If you want to hear more from me, you can visit workingthroughit.substack.com. And if you want to read more of my stuff, you can visit my blog, sethinthefilmscene.blogspot.com. And and with that, I will leave to recuperate. Okay. See you later. Um, I hope you feel better soon, Brett. Thank yeah. you. Lis- listeners, imagine that I'm retiring into my little Darth Vader pod. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. Bye. R.I.P. Brett. God, we're not forgotten. It is now a forest ghost. <laughs> oh, there he is in my room. <laughs> <laughs>